You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Well, please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're continuing our series today in 1 Timothy called gospel culture in God's household. And today we're turning our attention to the topic of Christian maturity. Christian maturity. Now when you consider the topic of Christian maturity, when you think about who it is in your life that you look up to as a mature Christian, what comes to mind? What does the mature Christian life look like? Now some of us may picture someone who is very passionate about Jesus, the kind of person who is on fire for the Lord. When you see them in a worship service, they have both hands up and both eyes closed. And if you ever have a chance to hear them pray, they they pray with tears in their eyes. They pray zealously and passionately. Many Christians believe that, that passion is the mark of maturity. And I think that is one of the reasons why one of the most significant groups in 21st century Western Christianity are actually Christian musicians because they they put their passion on display and we say, wow, I want to be just like them. I want to be on fire for the Lord just like they are. Well, others say that it's not passion that marks a person as mature. It's knowledge. The the more people know, the more mature they are. Perhaps it's, it's actually the Christian apologists the defenders of the faith, those who debate atheists on secular campuses, those who have thought long and deep about the nature of the Christian faith. They have advanced degrees and they have their own radio programs. Those are the really mature Christians and if we want to grow in maturity, we want to become like them. Well, both passion and knowledge are certainly worth pursuing, but by themselves, they are not sufficient marks of maturity. After all, the Pharisees had both. You could say that the the Pharisees were passionate scholars. They they knew the word. They they studied their traditions. They were well-versed in knowledge, and they were passionate about what they believed in. They were zealous for God. But as Romans 10 says, there is such a thing as zeal without knowledge. And there is such a thing as knowledge without understanding. So what does it mean to be mature? That really is an essential question because how we answer that question will determine who we follow and who we aspire to become. If passion is the ultimate virtue, then we will align ourselves with the most exuberant, expressive people, the charismatic personalities on the stage and we will aspire to become just like them. Or if knowledge is the ultimate virtue, then we'll follow the intellectuals, and we'll think that the more knowledge we have, the more mature we must be. But neither is the path of true Christian maturity. Instead, true Christian maturity is defined by this. It is defined by godliness. It is defined by godliness. It's the godliness of your character that reveals how mature you truly are. To be godly means to be like God, to be holy as he is holy, to love what he loves, to 
hate what he hates. It's to live a life that reflects the perfection of God's character. To live lives that are full of wisdom and righteousness, justice, mercy, and love and compassion. It is, it is, it is to be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Passion and knowledge are good, but without godliness, they are meaningless. You could say that they are houses that are built on foundations of sand. They, they may stand for a season and, and look attractive for a time, but they will not stand the test of time. Godliness is the true mark of Christian maturity. And that means that if you're a follower of Christ, if you've put your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then, then godliness is your aim. It is your desire. Because we are not meant to spiritually plateau We're not meant to remain as spiritual infants. We are meant to grow up in the faith. Our faith is not stagnant. It is dynamic. It is not informative. It is transformative. We begin as spiritual infants, but if we remain as spiritual infants into our spiritual adulthood, then something has gone terribly wrong. And that's what our text is going to address today. This text is about why we should pursue godliness, and it's about how we should pursue godliness. And I I think if you're like me, you will be surprised by the answers of the why and the how. My hope is that these verses will give us all a greater desire to grow in maturity by growing in godliness. So let's read our verses together. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. This is the word of the Lord. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The title of this sermon is Growing in Godliness. We'll have two points today. First, the call to godliness, and second, the key to godliness. First, the call to godliness. You could say that our text today, three verses, it has three parts. The first part is about the church. We see that in verse 15, where Paul is talking about the church of the living God a pillar and buttress of the truth. The third part of the text is this poem in verse 16. It appears to be an ancient hymn or part of a catechism from the early church. And sandwiched in between these two parts, this statement about the church and the statement about Christ, is this phrase in verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now, you could say that this this phrase is the hinge upon which these verses turn. It is the mystery of godliness that Paul is concerned about. Paul wrote what he did about the church and about Christ with the aim of helping us to grow in godliness. This is what you could call practical theology. It is the, the doctrine of the church, ecclesiology, with the doctrine of Christ, Christology, applying to the doctrine of our sanctification, which is part of our soteriology. Now, Paul calls it a mystery 
because this really does seem impossible. If you think about what the implications are of this verse, that sinful, broken men and women, limited by our creatureliness and led astray by our sinfulness, could become like God, could actually become godly. How is that possible? Well, the story of salvation history is that it is not possible. Even the the heroes of our faith in the Old Testament, you go to any hero that we have, David, Abraham, Moses, all of them were flawed. All of them were sinful by nature. So if they couldn't become godly, what hope do we have? It's a mystery. But what the gospel does is it shows us how all the mysteries that existed before Christ are now revealed in Christ. The mystery of godliness has been solved, and Paul is going to show us how in these verses. But first, we need to understand why. Why why should we pursue godliness? Why should this be our desire? Why does this matter so much? Why is God calling us to become more like him? Well, we see the reasons in verses 14 and 15. But first, notice what Paul says in verse 14. He says, I hope to come to you soon. That's a wonderful phrase in this time when many of us can't be together. Paul knew the value of face-to-face fellowship. He and Timothy, his spiritual child, they had letters between them. They were communicating with one another through a written medium, but they were, they were no substitute for being together. And that's a helpful for, reminder for us in the midst of this pandemic, that the barriers to being together should not diminish our desire to be together. We are grateful for emails and live streams and phone calls, but we should never become satisfied with them. What, what has become normal should not become normative in our lives. We shouldn't settle for this lower standard of fellowship because we're meant to be together. We're meant to have one another in each other's homes. We're meant to greet one another with handshakes and hugs. We're meant to have face-to-face fellowship. And so we would do well to say verse 14 to one another. Whether you are here together or you're watching on the live stream, let us pray, I hope to come to you soon. But there were some things that Paul needed to say to Timothy before they were together. And that, that's why we have this letter. That's why 1 Timothy exists. Timothy wrote this letter to convey an urgent message that couldn't wait until the next time they were together in person. Well, what was so urgent and pressing? The answer is in verse 15. Paul is writing so that Timothy and the church that he led in Ephesus may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. They may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Paul is concerned about Christian behavior. He felt such an urgent need to remind Timothy that that there is a standard of moral conduct that that, that is meant to be seen and experienced in the church. Now, churches often use the saying that you come as you are. And that is a gloriously true welcome for sinners. The church is not for those who have life altogether. The church is for recovering 
sinners. You don't need to clean up your life before you come to Christ. You can come as you are, but it is also true that if you come as you are, you will not remain as you are. God will change you in the way that you interact with other people, the the way that you speak to them, the, the things that you think about in your heart about other people, about yourself and about God, they will change. And your life will rise to the standard of Christian behavior. There is a standard that is meant to be seen and experienced in the church. Now that doesn't mean that we're all gonna live out that standard in the same way because we are all at different levels of maturity. But it does mean that we are all equally committed to living out and growing into this standard. Well, what what is that standard? How, How ought we to behave in the household of God? Well, that's what we've been seeing in the first three chapters of 1 Timothy. And that is what we will continue to see in the next three chapters of Timothy. Paul is not just letting Timothy to define what that standard is for himself. He's telling him what that standard is. And so we saw in chapter one, Paul says that my aim in writing you this letter is love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, right? The standard in the church, in God's household, begins with love, with loving one another. Then we saw in chapter two where he gets a little bit more specific. What does love look like? Well, then he exhorts the men to not be characterized by quarreling and anger, but instead to pray, to lift holy hands without anger or quarreling. Then he addresses Christian women. He says, don't don't adorn yourself with with pearls and costly attire, but but dress in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control because your identity is not found in what you look like. It's found in who you are in Christ. And when you develop that identity, then you'll devote your life not to good looks, but to good works. You see how practical Paul is? He tells us what the standard of behavior is meant to be in the life of the church. Then earlier in chapter three, he wrote about the qualifications of elders and deacons. You remember that? And you remember that he wasn't just writing that those qualifications, those, those virtues for leaders. He's giving the leaders those virtues because they're meant to lead the, the rest of the church in living out these virtues. And so the standard of Christian behavior in the church includes self-control, gentleness, hospitality. It includes learning how to manage our households well because strong families will lead to a strong church. It leads to being, living our lives with such integrity and honesty that we are well thought of even by outsiders, by non-Christians. They can look at our lives and say, that person is a good man or a good woman. That is the standard we are called to. It was a standard that was so important to Paul that he had to put it down in this letter. It was urgent then and it is urgent now. But, but why, why is it so important Why is it so important for us to live according to this standard? Well, it's important because of what the church is, okay? It's the nature of the church that determines the conduct within it. And Paul says three things about the nature of the church. First, he says it's the household of God. It's the household of God. It's God's family. You know, I'm not the head of this church, 
God, God is the head of this church. He, he sets the agenda. It's his values that determine what our values are. God's people ought to be godly people because this is God's household. It's his precious family. And it is his intention and desire to shape this family to reflect his glory. And so when people walk into a church, they're not just meant to say, well, that's a nice religious community. They're meant to say, those people, they're, they're a family. And more than that, they're meant to say, this is the family of God. They should sense not only our love for one another, but they should sense God's presence among his beloved children. This is his household. We belong to one another as brothers and sisters, but we also belong to God as his beloved children. Second, Paul says that it's the church of the living God. The church of the living God. The church, whenever you see the word church in the New Testament, it's the Greek word ecclesia. That's why we call the doctrine of the church ecclesiology. It's the ecclesia, which means the assembly. The assembly of God's people. This, this church and every other faithful church in the world is the assembly of the living God. Our God is the living God. He is not like the dead, lifeless idols of false religions. He is the living God, and it is his life that fills the church. The church lives because God lives. He is the living God, and his life fills his church. He is the giver of life, and he has given that life to his church. Third, he says that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, some translations say it's the pillar and foundation of the truth, but the meaning of both is the same. The church exists to hold up something greater than itself. That's why we build pillars. That's why we build foundations and, and buttresses. They, they may have some inherent beauty, but the only reason why they exist is to hold up something greater than themselves, to put something else on display. And the same is true of the church. There is beauty in the church, yes, but if we only see the people, we've missed what the church is meant to point us to. It's meant to point us to the truth. To the truth, the, tr the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Churches exist to put God's truth on display. And we do that by what we proclaim, and we do that by how we live. If a church loses the truth, or if it stops living according to the truth, it's lost the whole purpose of its existence. I don't know if you've ever seen those images of those ancient Roman ruins, where you just have random pillars standing in the middle of nowhere. And you might see that and say, well, that's a nice pillar, but you're not left standing in awe of this round cylindrical structure. Instead, you're left wondering, what is it that it once held up? You're left imagining, what, was, what, what did that building look like that that pillar was once a part of? God is calling us to godliness because only godly lives can display God's truth. When Paul writes that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth, we're not meant to picture buildings. Okay, this building is not a pillar of the truth. Churches use buildings. We're blessed to have a building, but the church is not a building. It is a people. And so 
we are the ones who are holding up God's truth. We collectively, as we live out our Christian lives, are putting God's truth on display. So if people are to hear God's truth and see God's truth in action, it must be reflected in the godliness of our lives. God is calling us to godliness because he wants to put the truth on display, his truth on display. But how do we grow in godliness? How do we increasingly become the kinds of people in the kind of church that holds up God's truth for the world to see? How can our church become a strong, solid, unshakable pillar of the truth? And that leads to our second point, the key to godliness. Now, if, if you were the one, or if I were the one writing 1 Timothy, where do you think you would go? You've just set out this wonderful introduction to the need to pursue godliness, and then what would we say about the how? about the practical application of of how we actually become godly people. We would probably say something like, well, read your Bible, pray, go to church. You know, do the right things. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And in fact, that's that's what Paul is gonna say in chapter four. We, We won't grow if we don't work, okay? Sanctification takes self discipline. It takes action. We need to, to work out our salvation, uh, not, because, not to earn our salvation, but to work out its effect in how we live our lives. Paul will, will get into that in chapter four, but before he does that, he turns our attention away from ourselves to what we need to do, and he turns our attention to Jesus and to what Jesus has done. This is the key. Listen, my friends, this is the key to the mystery of godliness, Yes, godliness takes self-control. It takes willpower empowered by the Spirit. But the true key to godliness is beholding Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul doesn't give us five principles for living a godly life or seven habits for sanctification. He gives us Jesus. He exalts in the Son of God. And he puts Christ on display for us to see and to be transformed by. This is the pattern for growth and godliness that we find in the New Testament. You know, the second part of our mission statement there on the wall, we are revealing Christ. It quotes this verse in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. We become like Christ by beholding Christ. And we see the same truth here in these verses is by beholding Christ that we become more like Christ. And that is because our problem in not being godly, in not living like Jesus, doesn't lie in our heads. It isn't a matter of getting the right knowledge. It is a matter of the heart. We have hearts of ice that are cold and dead towards God. And it's only the the heat of Christ's love for us beheld and enjoyed regularly that we are melted and we are transformed. We need more of Christ if we are to become more like Christ. And so Paul paints a picture of Christ for us in verse 16. And he does that by quoting what appears to be this ancient hymn about Jesus. You call it a Christ hymn, a Christ hymn. 
The scholars believe that it's a hymn because of its poetic structure. You don't see it in the English translations, but if you knew how to study Greek, you would see its poetic structure. And if you are a scholar of Greek, you'll be encouraged by this line. Each line of this poem has a passive verb followed by prepositional phrases employing the preposition N plus an anarthrous dative object. I have no idea what that means. And I'm sure many of you don't either. Maybe Timon does. But uh, trust me, trust the scholars when they say that there's poetic structure here. And, and, and as we read it as poetry, we must remember that it's not meant to be a comprehensive summary of doctrine. It's not a, a defense of the Christian faith. It's not gonna say everything about Jesus that, it, that needs to be said. It's poetry. It's a beautiful piece of art. And we are meant to read it as such. Now, there's no consensus on the structure of the poem. Some people say, well, it's three groups of two lines each, or it's two groups of three lines each, or you know, each line alternates between an earthly focus and a heavenly focus, a, a fleshly focus and a spiritual focus. Um, we could get into that. I don't think it's, it'll be that fruitful for the purposes of a sermon. But what I will point out is that every line, every line of this poem is about Christ, Every line is about Christ. Christ was manifested in the flesh. Christ was vindicated by the Spirit. Christ was seen by angels. Christ was proclaimed among the nations. Christ was believed on in the world. Christ was taken up in glory. Christ is the blazing center of this ancient hymn because he is the key to true, lasting godliness. Looks like I, uh, I usually have my tablet with me. It decided to die, so I have paper, and it looks like I forgot a couple of pieces of paper in my backpack, so I'll be right back. There's the rest of the sermon. There we go. All right, this poem begins with the incarnation, Christ being flesh, becoming flesh. He was manifested in the flesh, it says. This first line captures both the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ. You notice it doesn't say that Christ originated in the flesh. He wasn't created in the flesh. Because his birth, uh, you know, when he became a man, that didn't mark his beginning. That didn't mark his origins. Rather, he was, he was manifested in the flesh. He revealed who he already was when he became a man. The eternal one who was and is and is to come. He entered time and space when he broke into our worlds by, by entering the virgin's womb. And he did that to manifest himself, to reveal himself so that we could know him. We could see the invisible God in him. We could speak with the word of God in him. And we could become like him by his presence. He became like us so that we could become like him. Now the second line says that he was vindicated by the spirit. And this is a reference to the resurrection. Vindication, to be vindicated is to be proven right, to be shown to be innocent. You know, when someone is 
falsely condemned for a crime they never committed. Like, um, I think it was Guy Paul Morin, he was in the news recently, convicted for a murder of a little girl he never committed. Well, he was vindicated. He was declared to be innocent. He didn't commit the crime that he was convicted for. Well, Jesus, Jesus needed vindication. He needed to be pronounced innocent because on the cross, he was pronounced guilty. On the cross, God the Father condemned God the Son as he poured out his holy wrath that we deserve and directed it to his Son instead. Jesus took our place. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. He was pronounced guilty for our sins and not for his own. He was pronounced guilty so that we could be pronounced innocent. His crucifixion was our vindication because he bore our condemnation. Now, three days later, he received his own vindication when the Spirit of God raised him from the dead. It was through the resurrection that the Father declared to the world for all time that his Son is innocent. He showed the world that Jesus is indeed his beloved son, that all that he said about himself and all that he did in the name of the Father, it was true. And his sacrifice for our sins had been fully accepted. We see this captured in Romans 1 verse 4. Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the spirit. Third, he was seen by angels. Seen by angels. If you trace all the times that angels are present with Jesus, you'll see that it wasn't just at his birth. It wasn't just the the choir of angels singing to the shepherds on the hillside. Angels were there in the wilderness with him after Jesus was tempted by the devil. They, they, They attended to him. They ministered to him in his weakness. They were with him in the garden of Gethsemane. You remember that? He's on the path to the cross. He's crying out, out Father, if, if possible, let this cup pass from me. And he was in such grief that he, he sweat what appeared to be drops of blood. The angels were there strengthening him. And the angels were there when he rose again in triumphant resurrection. It was an angel sitting on that stone prepared to declare to the disciples that he is not here, he has risen. This line of the hymn assures us that everything that Jesus said, everything that Jesus did was true because he didn't just have an earthly audience. He wasn't just watched by human witnesses. He was watched by angels. The heavenly realms were witnesses to his saving work to what he had accomplished in the name of the Father to save sinners. The fourth line says that he was proclaimed among the nations. The good news of Christ manifested, vindicated, and seen has always been meant to be brought to everyone, regardless of culture or creed, race or religion. Christ is the savior of all people. He is the, the only mediator, the one mediator between God and man. And it is our privilege to proclaim him among the nations. The fifth line says that he was believed on in the world. As Christ is proclaimed, people believe. 
That's the only reason why any of us are here today. Someone in our past faithfully proclaimed Christ to us and we believed. God took those words communicated to us by a human instrument and he infused those words with his power and caused those words to to bring new life where there was only spiritual death. We needed God to sovereignly act upon our souls because our hearts, they're too hardened to choose God for ourselves. Our eyes are too weak to behold the glory of God in Christ. We need God to give us new hearts. We need him to open our blinded eyes. And the only reason why any of us trust in Christ is because of his sovereign grace. We love him because he loved us first. Christ is proclaimed and Christ is believed because God grants the power of belief. That is true of everyone who believes and that is true of everyone who will believe. Christ is proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world because God is at work saving sinners. He is at work saving all whom he has chosen and he is bringing them back to himself. The sixth line says that he was taken up in glory. It begins, this hymn begins with Christ entering the world in the flesh and it ends with him being taken up in glory. And there he sits at the right hand of the Father until he makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. The crucified Christ has become the exalted Christ as he reigns over all things forever. My friends, these are the truths that bring us true, lasting transformation. This is how we grow in godliness. The more we reflect on these truths about Christ, the more we cherish them, love them, rejoice in them, the more we become like him. Now, perhaps you're here today and you are spiritually ambivalent. You're not sure what you believe about Jesus. Perhaps you grew up in a Christian home or maybe you don't come from a Christian background at all. What you do know is that you're not happy with who you are. You keep doing the same foolish things. You keep hurting the people you love. You keep coasting along your life like a passenger watching as the years of your life go by. You've tried to change yourself, but you can't. You don't understand why. Well, the Bible says it's because you have a problem that is far too great for you to overcome. It's a problem of sin. You know, we are not born as blank slates. The doctrine of tabula rasa by the this, the secular rationalists, it's anti-biblical. We, we are not blank slates. We are born with a sinful nature that opposes God and opposes our fellow man. You and I and everyone else who has ever lived, we have a sinful nature that inclines us to do what is wrong, even when we know what is right. And we can't be free from it by our own efforts. We are slaves to it. But Christ has come to set us free. He died for our sins to free us from our sins. And because of him, we wouldn't just be changed. We would be changed into the likeness of God. We would become people whose hearts reflect God's heart and whose lives reflect God's beauty. This is the only way to find lasting, meaningful change. It's to come to Jesus to live a life that is not just beautiful in the eyes of the world, but beautiful in the eyes of God. 
You can come as you are, but you will not remain as you are. And that is, that is good news. We don't want to remain as we are because our sins are destructive. They, they drag us through the mud of life and they hurt those we love. We want to put our sins away. We want to repent of them. That's the biblical word for leaving our sins behind. And we want to turn to Christ and lose the burden of living for ourselves and discover the joy of living for him. And that is where true life is found. You know, Jesus said, those who lose their lives for my sake will find it. True life is found in laying down our lives and finding our lives in him. So come to him and he will welcome you into his household. He will bring you into his assembly. He will make you a pillar of the truth so that your life, even your life, will be a pillar and buttress of the truth so that others may encounter God himself through you. And to my brothers and sisters in Christ, to all who are already part of God's household, the one image that I want us to leave here with is that we are pillars of the truth. We are pillars of the truth, and that is both freeing and sobering. It is freeing because this isn't about us. It isn't for us to make our lives impressive. It's not for us to make our church impressive. It is for us to point to the only one who truly is impressive, that is Christ. But it is also sobering because God has entrusted us with his truth. He has entrusted us to put his truth on display by the godliness of our lives and by the godliness of our speech. We must be pillars in our homes, remembering that our children won't change if we don't show them the glory of our Savior. Yes, we do need to give them the law. We, we do need to teach them what is right and what is wrong, but if we only give them the law, listen, if we only give them the law, they're either gonna be crushed by their guilt or they're gonna be hardened by their self-righteousness. They're either gonna be aware of how far they, they fall short of the law of God and be left hopeless and in despair because they could never meet that standard, or they'll become self-righteous hypocrites in believing that they can earn their own righteousness. My friends, what they need most is not the law, though they surely need the law. What they need is Christ. We must display Christ in our homes. We must serve as pillars of the truth in our families. We can't manufacture real change in our homes at least not the kind of change that leads to godliness. We can change behavior, but we can't change hearts. We need to let our children and let our spouses enter into the mystery of godliness by showing them again and again the one who is manifested in the flesh, who is crucified for sinners, who is vindicated by the Spirit, who is exalted into glory. We must be pillars in our homes. And we must be pillars in our church. We must hold up the truth at a time when the truth is being attacked. There are more and more things in the Bible that people are offended by. Truths about sin, truths about gender and sexuality, truths about marriage, truths about the authority of the Bible, truths about the exclusive salvation that is found in Christ alone. The question for us is, will we uphold the truth? Will we stand 
strong and steadfast, bearing the weight of our truth, of the truth on our shoulders, even when it is getting heavier? Or will we crumble away? Will we let the truth collapse as we conform to the rest of the world? God has made us to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. And by his grace, we will endure. But we need to know the truth and delight in the truth. The one who is the truth, Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The more we see Jesus, the more we will become like him. And the more we become like him, the more we will be able to bear this sacred responsibility of putting God's truth on display. May God give us strength. May he lead us into the mystery of godliness by leading us again and again to the one who is the truth. Let's pray. Father, what incredible promises we have encountered in your word today. We say with Paul, great indeed is the mystery of godliness. But we also affirm that godliness is available for all who are in Christ. We thank you for this privilege of holding up the truth as the church of the living God. We pray for increased faithfulness, increased strength to uphold the truth without apology and to do so lovingly, not out of self-righteousness, not out of pride, but out of a humility that comes from knowing that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom we are the foremost. And so lead us, Father, to Jesus that we may become more like him. We pray in his name, amen.